Just as a note, uh, there are a number of scriptures read, uh, listed in the bulletin. We encourage you to uh, read all of them when you have a chance. Uh, we're only going to read a section, and actually the psalm that we're going to read is different from what is listed, just so you're aware. So the scripture reading today comes from Psalm 16, verses 1 to 2 and 5 to 11. A mictum of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The New Testament reading today is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and then verses 13 to 25. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I, want, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep, it, keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning. Before I begin with our sermon this morning, I want to welcome those of you who have come to town to join with so many of us yesterday to celebrate Amy Johnson's life and to be present with each other to mourn her death. So let's not forget what Pastor Andrew said to us yesterday. For even as we mourn Amy's death, it's important for us to remind each other that our gathering here today, as we do each week to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is an affirmation that although we grieve and the pain is great, our hope is not lost. Not only this, but our gathering to worship Jesus, our King, is a declaration in the face of evil, in the face of cancer, in the face of death, that this is not how the world was made to be, and this is not the end of the story. As C.S. Lewis might say, there's a deeper magic that is even now at work and is carved into the foundations of the world. Aslan is on the move. What that means is that even in this dark hour, God is now at work and God is unstoppable. So our gathering here today to worship the resurrected Jesus reminds us that while painful realities exist in our world, we know from God's word that this is not the end, and in fact, it's only the beginning. God's shalom in which he puts all things right will come when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we thank you for Amy's life. We bless you for your word, which reminds us at times like this that you are still on the throne and still holding all things together. Would you, in your comforting kindness, hold the Johnson family and all those who were shaped by Amy's life, hold them close to your heart this day and in the days to come. God, you've given us your word, and at times like this, we turn to your word to remind us of your truth, your story of redemption, your faithful character, and your love for us. We look to your word to correct our vision so that we might see things aright. Open our eyes this day to what you would have us both see and do to more faithfully follow you and be formed by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So about two months ago, Andrew sent me an email and invited me to preach. At that time, every Sunday in the summer calendar was still open. I had my pick. I picked today. Perhaps it was providential that rather than deleting that email, however, at the time, I clicked save as unread. I thought I wouldn't have to do this. But sure enough, I continued to notice that unread email, and the Holy Spirit continued to nudge me with the reminder that every time I step into difficult things like this, God consistently grows me. And while I may not always want that, I know that I need it. At about the same time, a few folks in my family convinced the others in our family to go skydiving. 
on Father's Day two weeks ago. The concept of preaching and skydiving gave me an idea that perhaps I could agree to preach and never actually have to. I figured jumping out of an airplane's pretty dangerous anyway, and my blood pressure rises just thinking about it, so it seemed pretty unlikely that my chance of actually making it to this Sunday was pretty slim. Never, needless to say, how, however, the jump was successful. There we go. The jump was successful, and meanwhile, God has been nudging me, and I hope the Holy Spirit will use my words to nudge you as well this morning. As you may have heard, we begin a summer sermon series today entitled People of the Book. Today we'll take some time to consider what people of the book means by exploring a bit of the history that accompanies this phrase. One of the things I looked to do as I put this sermon together was to try to figure out what of means. Thus the title of today's sermon, To Be Of. I discovered that of is actually kind of hard to define because it seems to include some hard to define words such as to be in relationship with, to be formed by, belong to, changed by, or originate from. A few of these definitions did yield fruit, as I suggested, as I will suggest three things that ought to set us apart as people of the book. We yield to the authority of Scripture and are changed by the book. We allow Scripture to reshape our character and convictions, and we are formed by the book. And finally, this morning, we'll talk about how we are made different and made new as we are saturated by the stories and writings of the Bible. So perhaps you already know, historically, that people associated with two of the more prominent religions of the world have considered themselves people of the book. Jews have their book, Torah, and Christians have their book, Bible. Interestingly enough, there are references to both Jews and Christians as people of the book in the Quran. Both Jews and Christians consider their book to be filled with sacred text that was revealed by God to people who then wrote it down and, and, then, and, and, then asked, and then we were intended to follow it. So faithful Jews honored the Torah so religiously that their actions, their culture, and their social identity are rooted in and guided by the 613 commands that detail how they are to live. Ideally, their commitment to these commands should stem from a desire to obediently follow God, who made a covenant with their ancestors saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. But, as many of us know, legalism and tradition, tradition slip in. And those become the reasons that they follow these commands, not love for God or taking delight in God's law. Christians, likewise, honor the 39 Old Testament books and also include 27 sections of the New Testament as well. Followers of Jesus also tend to view the scripture as God's written explanation for both how he wants us to follow him, as well as a description of his own character. And legalism can be a problem for Christians as well. 
Ideally, however, we should be motivated by a desire to know God and love God and follow the actions and teachings of Jesus obediently because we know how much has been poured out for us. So growing in faith and becoming people of the book really does mean that we want to faithfully read and study the Bible. Now that's a bit of the history behind the phrase people of the book, and now you know that both Jews and Christians claim this moniker. But just for fun, here are a few additional facts about Jews and books that maybe you didn't know. Did you know, for example, that according to Jewish tradition, Jews are not to take a book into the bathroom or expose a book to one's nakedness. They're not to shelve a book upside down or leave a book open unless one is reading it. They must never place a book of lower holiness on top of a book of greater holiness. And by the way, if you are Jewish and you ever drop a book and it touches the ground, you must pick it up and give it a kiss. There's actually something kind of wonderful to be said for the honor and respect that Jews have for the written word, and in particular, for the sacred scriptures. My hope for all of us this summer, as we go through this series, is that we might reorient our own thinking about scripture and come to more fully honor and respect God's word as we see that God longs to speak to us and form us through his book. So as we dig into our lectionary scripture from Galatians, we're going to see that certain things set Christians apart as they press into being people of the book. The first is that Jesus' followers are changed by the book. In today's lectionary reading from Galatians, it's evident that Paul wants followers of the way of Jesus to be free from the petty and legalistic rituals that had enslaved and confused them. It appears that the Galatians had become overwhelmed by the legalism that can so easily slip into anyone's habits of faith. And Paul's words urge them to do things differently, to be changed or transformed. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And again in verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. For followers of Jesus, those 613 Jewish commands that made Jews people of the book were not to be the key to how they, the Galatians, or we, experience faith in Jesus. I remember being in middle school, and every Saturday afternoon, our youth leader would gather the six boys in the church youth group for a Bible study. He always began with the same question. Did you do your devotions every day this week? The room would get silent. Our chins would sink into our chests. And as Kurt Thompson would say, our shame attendant would be delighted. That was the yoke of slavery that Paul speaks about here in Galatians. But contrast that yoke with the yoke Jesus offers in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. 
See that slide? Thank you. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Place my yoke over your shoulders and learn from me because I am gentle and humble. Then you will find rest for yourselves because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I heard a podcast the other day on how a young ox is taught to learn to plow. You put an older, experienced ox in one part of the yoke and a young, inexperienced, and far weaker ox in the other side of the yoke. As the young ox yields to the authority of the experienced ox, the young one learns to walk alongside the older one, step for step. They don't plow yet. That wouldn't make any sense. But the young one simply learns to keep stride with and follow the lead of the experienced one. And here's the kicker. During the entire process, the older experienced ox carries nearly the entire weight of the yoke. The people who were coming to Jesus at this time were already heavy laden, overburdened, whether by the legalism and rules placed on them by their religious leaders, or by their striving to get right with God, or just in managing how difficult life can be. And Jesus offers them a yoke of rest. He offers the same to us as we take on his yoke and learn to follow his ways. So first, as people of the book, we get to choose to recognize and yield to the authority of Scripture. And when we do this, we are changed by the book. We learn to act differently and to do it with joy because the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And we flourish because we are being led by one who loves us and knows what we need. Those of us who say, well, I already know what scripture says and are therefore not in a habit of allowing the yoke of God's word to change our steps, are missing out on the gift and blessing of being sharpened and refined and changed by the Holy Spirit as God's word convicts us. J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, wrote about followers of Jesus who are confident in their faith and yet do not practice the habits of prayer and meditation on the word of God. These, he says, live far below their privileges. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you not to miss out on the privilege you have of forming a habit of reading scripture and allowing it to change you. The Galatian passage goes on and explains what wearing God's yoke will do for us. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you get that? Walk by or beside the Spirit. I love that. It's yoke language. I'm not yoking. I'm going to get in trouble for that one, but I had to say it. Think about this. Yokes don't work and fields don't get plowed when oxen are not in step but are in conflict with each other, as it goes on to say in verse 17. 
But when we yield to the word of God as God's loving, easy yoke of authority, we are changed and we learn how to walk and live in step with God, in step with the Holy Spirit. And remember that this burden is easy and this yoke is light, so there's joy and peace in becoming people of the book. Secondly, people of the book are formed by the book. We find that not unlike the Jewish tradition of allowing the Torah to shape one's actions and culture, followers of Jesus also dig into God's word and invite God to use his word to form us. What this means is that we ask God to use scripture to mold our character, guide our decisions, form our heart and mind, so that we will have godly conviction about what to believe and what is true. If you've ever observed an Orthodox Jewish community, you know that their clothing, rituals, and culture look quite different than the culture around them. Although Christian people of the book may not feel obligated to follow the 613 commands of the Torah, we still ought to look different than the culture around us. We ought to look like this. There we go. Read it with me. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we are living like this, living by the Spirit and keeping step with the Spirit, we are going to look different. In my experience, being spiritually formed and growing in love, joy, peace, and the rest tends to be painful. It is because I work so hard to resist it. At times, it can feel like when our hearts and our character are being formed by the Spirit, it's a lot like clay being smashed and pressed and molded, or like metal being melted and pounded and forged. Now, I just said in my first point that God's yoke is easy and his burden is light, so maybe that painful piece doesn't make much sense. But think of it this way. When we take on God's yoke and commit to walking in step with God's word, we experience rest and ease in knowing that we don't have to stress out about trying to be perfect anymore. Jesus already died. He already forgave our sin, and we are already made right with God. However, life may still be quite hard and filled, as we know from experience here at WCF, with death and suffering and pain. Not only that, but Jesus calls us to follow his actions by loving God and neighbor, caring for the poor, growing in humility, gentleness, patience, and grace toward each other. And that's hard stuff to do. Six years ago, I sat in a room getting my end-of-year review. Four members of my board of trustees spent two hours listing 45 areas in which I needed to grow in the next school year. Can I get an amen, Beth? No. Then they pulled out an anonymous letter and began to blast me with accusations to which I was not invited to respond. That evening, I sat down and wrote a several-page email response to what I had heard that day, and then I sent the email, and I waited. 
I waited the entire summer. Seven weeks, and no one responded. In the silence, I initially sank into about as deep of depression as I've ever experienced. And at some point late in the summer, God got my attention. Because during that period, I continued a habit of reading through the Psalms. Psalm 16, which we read earlier, says, The Lord is all I need. He takes care of me because he's close at my side. I rejoice and I am glad. Even my body has hope. God's word has the power to remind us of what is true and form us, even in trauma, even in suffering. In my case, scripture not only reminded me of God's love for me, but the Holy Spirit used what I read to begin to transform my character, my leadership, my relationships with my children, and my marriage. People of the book, God's word is his loving forge intended to form you. I think my last point, being saturated by the book, may be best illustrated by a story. I grew up in a church in which we regularly heard the testimonies of different congregants who would share about how they had come to faith and about the miraculous things God had done in their lives to transform their character. Telling our stories is both encouraging and, in my case, life-changing. I loved those testimonies. Because even though I may not have experienced life on drugs or running with a gang, I knew that God had done something miraculous in the storyteller's life and that they were no longer the person they once were. This past week, I listened to a young woman who told her story of struggling with an eating disorder. She struggled throughout middle school, high school, and college. And along with anorexia came a number of accompanying problems physical violence inflicted on herself, depression, a shaming and unhealthy self-image, and many broken relationships. At some point in college, she turned her heart toward Jesus, and with that, she found some initial freedom from her addictive habits and unhealthy behaviors. She began to be connected to a body of Jesus followers, and they began to hold her accountable and walk with her, But within a few weeks, she discovered that not all of her problems automatically went away. The temptations and patterns of unhealthiness did not suddenly disappear. Having grown up in a home that valued scriptures and recalling that the word of God is living and active, she found herself in moments of weakness, opening her Bible and reading not concerned in the least about where her Bible opened or what she was reading. Knowing that temptation was right around the corner at the next meal, she found herself reciting scripture to herself throughout the day and humming spiritual songs she'd not recalled in years. Her reasoning, as she explained it, was simply that I know God's word will lead me into truth. So if I just read it or sing it or recite it for five minutes or 20 minutes, 
I'm strengthened to resist temptation. And I'm reminded of who I am, of God's love for me, and of Jesus' sacrifice for me. Now let's be clear. God's word is not a talisman filled with magic spells that make bad things disappear. And yet, there is power, conviction, and truth that will emerge as we are saturated by God's word. As I wrap up, let me leave you with a few ideas you might choose to act upon to apply what we've learned today. First of all, recognize that as people of God, we are also people of the book. And what that ought to lead us to do is be passionate about immersing ourselves in the word of God. We want to get to know the author of the book. And we want to invite the living word to be our example to form us in the, into the shape and character of Jesus. Second, make it a habit to memorize God's word and then return to it regularly. Singing scripture songs is often easy, easier for some folks to drill scripture into their heads, but remember that memorizing isn't just for kids. Third, Begin to develop a habit of studying God's word and invite the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind and form your heart as you read. Don't make it something legalistic, but focus on delighting in what God has to teach you. We, people of the book, ought to be so enthralled with the fact that God would want to speak to us that we cry out like the psalmist, oh, how I love and treasure your revelation of your word. Throughout the day, I fill my heart with its light. And finally, I think there is amazing power in faithfully and daily opening God's word together. Notice that we are people of the book, not just a person of the book. I'll give one last example. In ninth grade, my parents decided to pull me out of a Christian school and send me to the local public high school. Knowing that this would be a spiritual shift for me and knowing that it was still her responsibility to help me learn to put on the full armor of God, my mom sat down with me and made a commitment to me. I'll get up every morning and make you breakfast if you will allow me to read scripture to you while you eat it. Breakfast sounded good. <laughs> so I agreed. Over the next four years and on into the following three years when my brother was in high school, my mom made a hot breakfast every day and read the Bible to us. Kristen and I made the same commitment to our children 10 years ago. And in September, we'll be empty nesters with no one to make breakfast for except each other. Here's my point. Forming a habit of being saturated in the word of God together as a family each day has shaped our family's approach to life, to suffering, to faith, to everything and it has been instrumental in growing each of our relationships with God.
So brothers and sisters, fellow people of the book, may this summer of faithfully reading and studying God's word together as a body of believers give us a longing and passion to more fully and deeply know and love the author of our story. Amen.